Father, as we come to your word tonight, we understand our complete dependence on you. If you will not open my lips, I cannot say anything profitable. And if you will not open and so move in the minds and hearts of each one seated here, the most beautiful and eloquent words I may speak would be of no benefit. Father, this is your word. You have promised it will not return void. You've given us so many promises to do us good and to teach us and to lead us and guide us and sanctify us according to your word. And we pray that you would fulfill them in us tonight. Lord, move in our hearts. Work in us by your Holy Spirit. Mold us and shape us. Use me to bring clarity to your word. We want to grow in our love for you, our knowledge of you. We want to live out lives faithfully dedicated to your glory, looking for the hope that is to appear. We commit this time to you asking that you would be glorified. We need you, so please work in us and for us. We trust you. Amen. So, this prayer. This prayer could go so many different directions. Um, Each phrase is just packed with meaning, with powerful prepositions connecting rich realities of what has been done for us, what we have to look forward to, what is being done in us. You could perhaps spend a sermon on each one of these phrases going through very, very slowly, but we have only one evening tonight. And so I want to take a broader theme addressed in this prayer and I think pointed out by this prayer and explore it and hopefully we'll learn more how to pray through it. And the topic I've chosen, the topic I believe this will teach us on is praying for the Holy Spirit. And we get this right out of the gate in verse 17. The prayer begins this way, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. In our day and age, there are many misuses, abuses, misunderstandings, what it means to pray for the Holy Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's commonly an overemphasis on the sensational, speaking in tongues, of ecstatic experiences closer to seizures than anything normative, being drunk in the spirit, wild ecstasies, hypnotic movements. And the response to that is often a cold fear of emotionalism, unless we become like that. What is it, what is it to have the Holy Spirit working in our lives? How do we pray for that properly? All of us have, have prayed for that in some ways. Maybe we've used different terms in the scriptures. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Send your spirit here. Work in us by your spirit. Let your spirit have free reign. These are very Christianese phrases that are commonly prayed. But do we understand what they mean? Are we praying those according to knowledge? Are we really understanding what we're asking? And is our heart motivation correct? Are we praying according to the scriptures when we pray for the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives? When we pray for the Holy Spirit in our lives? I hope to address that and and hope to bring out how we ought to pray 
for the Holy Spirit in our lives through our study of the scriptures tonight. And in doing that, we recognize that we have an entire dependence on the Holy Spirit as we even study. So be praying along with me that he would open our eyes to see this and learn from it rightly. So I want to, I'll generically break this up into about three sections. First, talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit, verse 17. Second, talking about what it means for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives, primarily focused on the first part of verse 18, and then looking at the specifics of what we're called to know, the three things in the end of verse 18 and the beginning of 19 and following. But they're not going to be clear subject headings as much as it's going to be a clean flow through with light distinctions. So what does it mean when Paul says, to start, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Well, the first thing we know, it does not mean that the Ephesians did not have the Holy Spirit. We don't pray for some kind of a second giving of the Holy Spirit. We don't pray to receive the Holy Spirit as if believers don't have the Holy Spirit. That's, that's not what it means. And that's evident just from a few verses prior. If you look back up at verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In him you also, the Ephesians, same people, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We know that every believer at the moment of conversion is given the Holy Spirit, sealed with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 21, 22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians 5, speaking about the hope of heaven. Paul writes, while we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit is given to every believer at the moment of conversion. It is the Spirit who causes them to be born again, as John 3, 16, as John 3 the whole chapter, says. It's not some kind of a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, where we somehow, again, have this ecstatic, supernatural experience of speaking in tongues. It's, it's not something, a different level to Christianity, where only a select few get to. We know this, again, because of how he continues. He doesn't pray and stop. He prays that God would give the spirit of wisdom in the knowledge of him. He continues on and defines what he means. It's not praying for more of the Spirit as if we had only been given part of the Spirit or as if the Spirit could have been divided or as if God had withheld some until we, we get to a certain spiritual growth and he gives us more and when we get to another, another plateau, he'll give us a little bit more. No, we know that we have all spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing in the, in the, places, in the heavenly places in Christ. We have been given the whole Holy Spirit. There is no division or partiality with it. So if we already have the Holy Spirit, why is Paul praying that God would give them the Holy Spirit? What is the intention here? And how do we then pray for the Holy Spirit in the same way? And this is where the continuation is very helpful. He says, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. 
What Paul is praying for and how we pray for the Holy Spirit is praying for the specific acting and working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Ephesian believers in our lives. It is, is a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. It is for more of the Holy Spirit's influence upon us. It's for us to have more submission to the Holy Spirit. And this prayer is a de- demonstration of our dependence on the Holy Spirit for growth and reality in our Christian walk. Compare Ephesians 3, the prayer there. Paul starts in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That the spirit would, would strengthen the Ephesians with power. That he would be at work inside of them to produce this fruit, to produce this reality. And he goes on to describe it, that Christ would dwell in the heart, that they would be able to comprehend and to know the love of Christ, to be filled with all the fullness of God. This is produced by the Spirit's work inside of a believer. And we pray then for the Spirit to be at work doing that. Compare John 6.63, this is very clearly in conversion, but we can apply this to sanctification as well. Where Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So too in our sanctification, it's the Spirit who quickens, who continues to make alive, who continues to mortify sin in us. Our flesh is weak, entirely unable on its own. John 14, 26 The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Bible is filled with teaching that the Holy Spirit will be at work in us, teaching us, leading us, guiding us, convicting us. And so what Paul prays for, and what we ought to pray for, is not some second manifestation of the Holy Spirit but additional fresh working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But what does this look like? What is the Spirit's work in us? What are we praying towards? We're not praying generically for some kind of a feeling. We're not praying generically for some kind of extra knowledge. We're praying specifically, as Paul writes, towards the knowledge of God. That he is praying that God would give the Ephesians the more knowledge of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. So what is the knowledge of God? What is it that we are to be pursuing? In Philippians 3, Paul describes it almost as the pinnacle of the Christian life, that whatever gain he had, he counted loss. That he, is, he has put everything behind him so that he would know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. That what he strove for, what he labored for, what he left everything behind for, was to know God. Jesus defines it as eternal life. This is eternal life, John 17. To know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And here, particularly in our text, it's a combination of a prefix, epi, and this word gnosis. You know this word gnosis as we bring it into the English as agnostic. It means to not know, the one who does not know. Particularly, I don't know if there is a God or not. But this word gnosis is used in a wide variety of ways. It's used for physical marital relations. That Joseph did not know 
his wife until she had given birth to Jesus. It's used to perceive or to understand the moment of getting it or it clicking in one's brains as when the chief priests and the scribes understood, they knew, they perceived that Jesus was speaking parables about them. Same word. It's used in terms of a personal relational knowledge, personal relationship. Anyone who does not love, 1 John 4, 8, does not know God. They're not friends with God. They've never been with God. It is, entire, it is also including mental comprehension, the maybe generic way we would use it, just to know something. Like, you know this pulpit is made of wood. That Romans 2.18, they knew the will of God because they understood it in the, in the scriptures. The Jews knew God's will. They had the law. They were instructed by it. They had a mental comprehension of what the law said. But it also means an experiential knowledge. It means to live it, to, to, to know it, and to feel it. Romans 7 Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Paul, Paul knew about sin. He had been instructed by the law as a Jew. But when the law came in to convict, he felt it. He knew what it was to sin. He knew what sin was. And he knew how sinful it was. It also means to learn or to discover the first time of knowing something. As in when Pilate learned the same word from the centurion that Jesus was already dead. And so we have this, this wide variety of meanings, but when we attach this prefix to it, it really narrows it down and intensifies it. It means the knowledge of something specific. It never just is a knowledge in general, but it is always attached to a particular subject. As in Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Colossians 1.10 that we are to be increasing in the knowledge of God. Or 1 Timothy 2.4, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Sin, God, God's word, God's truth. The knowledge of something, it intensifies it and directs it there. So when we speak about knowing God, the knowledge of God, we refer to so much more than knowing facts about God. It is knowing Him personally. It is to commune with him. It is not just to be able to explain the facts about God, but to be known of God and to know him personally. Yes, it is to know the things about God. Without that knowledge, you can't, you can't know. But you guys have relationships here in this life, and you know that it is not a list of facts. It is to, to know someone is so much more than that. It's to be with them, to spend time with them, to understand how they think, how they operate, what they like and what they don't like, what they hate, what they're like, what they have done in the past. And so too it is with God. To know God, we must take time in the scriptures and the word. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's not the doctrinal positions we hold. It's what immediately springs to the surface. Are the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts. Yes, the doctrines, but that relational, intimate, experiential knowledge of God. You might say it's to know with the head and the heart. And we could take this and put it into our scriptures again and compare the idea of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. How does the spirit help us to know God? How can we know God? We only know God through the Spirit, both, both firstly in conversion, 
but also as we grow in our knowledge of God is only through the Spirit. You see, the Bible is tr- full of truths about God, but unless the Spirit illumines your minds to truly grasp them, to put them together, to understand what they mean, there's no knowledge of God. If the Spirit does not give wisdom, there is no knowledge of God. John 14, 26, again, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. If the Holy Spirit is not there teaching, bringing to remembrance, there is no knowledge of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 13, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You see, we would have no understanding, no wisdom, no knowledge of what God reveals in His Word without the Holy Spirit. Think, think even to the beginning, how did we even get the Word of God so that we would have any type of knowledge of who God is, any type of revelation of what He is like, it's when the Holy Spirit was filled men who were prophets, when he carried them along as, as Peter writes, so that they were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit to prophesy and to write. The Holy Spirit is the author of this word. He's the one who illumines it. Without the Holy Spirit's work, there is no knowledge of God through the Scriptures. There is no understanding. But secondly, he also, he also reveals God. And this is similar, but we might take this and apply it to the heart. It's not just that he tells, helps us to understand the facts about God, to understand who God is and how his attributes relate to each other, or even understand what the scripture says about God. He is the one who warms our affections. You remember all the times in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, when people saw God. That's the idea of revealing it's that it would make something plain or seen which is previously hidden. You think about Moses there at the burning bush or Moses again when he saw the God's backside and he heard the name of God and his response was that he fell to his face in worship. A response was produced by the revealing of God. Isaiah, he saw God lifted up and high and his response was, woe is me. I am undone. Think about John on the Isle of Patmos. As he beheld the risen Christ, he fell to his feet as one dead in worship. Even as people beheld Christ, the, the people on the road to Emmaus, when their eyes were opened, there was, there was a, 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 a completion of the burning within them. We Didn't our hearts burn within us? We, we knew something was there. But until their eyes were opened, they didn't behold him. And so it is, not with our physical eyes anymore, but with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of our heart. It's the Spirit who reveals God to us. Why do these things move us? How can these things change us or affect us? How does the truth of Christ on the cross lead us to love God? Only if the Spirit produces that within us. If He reveals what a great love it was for Christ to die for us. This is not a revelation of new truths. It's not some kind of an additional revelation to the Bible. It's the revelation of who God is to our partially blinded eyes. We see dimly now. 
One day we will see clearly, but day by day now we are slowly taking blinders off as the Holy Spirit reveals more of what is written about God in this word. Now, as we sing songs that are full of praise, you've had those experiences of warming of your affections as, as something hits home in a particular way that it hadn't hit home before. As you're reading, something strikes home with conviction. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, revealing that to you. Something that you were previously blinded to or didn't see, it was, it was obfuscated. God is not hidden from us, but we don't see clearly. We are the ones who fail to grasp and comprehend who he is. And that's why he goes on in Ephesians 3 to pray what he prays. That we would be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit in our inner being. So that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. So that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To know the love of Christ, to comprehend the love of Christ, to be moved by it. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And do you want to feel more of how great God's love is for you? The Spirit is the one who produces that in you. You you want to grow in intimate communion with God and nearness to Him? The Spirit is the one that produces that in you. This prayer for God to give the Spirit is one of complete dependence. That you are unable to produce this fruit in yourself. You are unable to come to this Word and understand it on your own. That you are unable to even begin to know God. On your own. Even as a believer, as you come to this word, if the Holy Spirit does not work in you, it is vain. It's fruitless. As you pray, if the Holy Spirit is not helping you to pray, teaching you to pray, leading you in prayer, there is no effectual praying. There is no communion and nearness with God. If you are there on your own, there is nothing. This is why we must have the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He must be at work in us. We must be fully dependent on Him. But so often we feel much more competent in our own strength than we ought to. We do acknowledge our dependence on the Holy Spirit, but we are not as desperate and dependent on Him as we ought to be. The reality is, in our own strength, we can do nothing. We cannot bear fruit, we cannot understand the word of God. We, not kind of, we cannot progress in the knowledge of God. We cannot pray rightly. We cannot confess rightly. We will not have true repentance. We will not be able to share the gospel or witness. Family worship will be vain. Individual quiet time is vain. Our labor will be in vain. If the Holy Spirit is not working in us, we must be entirely dependent and desperate on His work. This is the confession of the prayer. These Ephesian believers cannot produce what Paul's about to write to them in their own strength. So he prays that God would give them the Holy Spirit, that he would cause the Spirit to work in them mightily and produce this in them. So how does the Holy Spirit produce this in them? This is part number two, and this goes into verse 18. 
where it says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. We already discussed this a little bit, the idea of revealing, of illumining the eyes, of turning on the light, so to speak. And, and this is actually rendered differently in a couple translations. In the ESV, it continues the prayer, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, as in the past tense. In the NASB, I believe it translates it as another prayer, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened, as in a future or present action that is yet to come or to be done presently. So there are differing thoughts of whether this is a prayer, whether this is a previous condition. What does it mean to have our hearts, the eyes of our hearts enlightened? The, the King James says the eyes of the understanding. And the, 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 the verb here, having, having enlightened, is, I looked this up in the grammar, it's the perfect passive participle. What that means is that it is an event that happened in the past which continues on to the day. It is current because, and ongoing, because of an action that began in the past. And so we take this both ways. We have one time been enlightened. Every one of us in conversion. None of us was born illumined. None of us was born seeing. None of us was born enlightened. We were born in darkness. We were born blind. We loved the darkness rather than the light. We would not see. We could not see. 2 Corinthians 4 makes this extremely clear. In verse 3 to 5, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, in your case as you were born, in my case, and if you are not in Christ, it is still your case. That right now, the God of this world has blinded your mind. Your mind was blinded. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then verse 6. How did that change? Because we were captive. Even if we would have wanted to be free, we couldn't. We were ensnared, held captive by one much stronger than us. Who, who, as it were, was, was pulling down our eyelids so that our eyes could not flutter open and see any light. He boarded us up in a room so that no light could ever creep in. He, there were so many walls and, and, and shields to keep any light from shining into our soul. We ourselves were blinded and we hated the light, so we were happy to remain in the darkness, in our prison, in our misery, in death. But, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Into the darkness, into the blindness, from inside and from without, a light shone. God acted upon you. The Holy Spirit made you born again. He produced life within you. Your heart of stone was changed into a heart of flesh, and the eyes that were blind now could see. You were delivered from the domain of darkness, as Paul writes in Colossians, and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. You were delivered from darkness, and now you walk in the light. You are children of light. So walk in the light, I think Paul says later in this, even this very book, in Ephesians 5. Children of light. You no longer belong to the darkness. You no longer are blinded. You see. You see clearly. But if you are not in Christ, you do not see. 
And there are people, there are children, perhaps even adults here in this very room who do not know Christ. And you live in blindness and in darkness. And perhaps you even come to these church services and you have a conscious confusion of what's going on. What do all these people see in Jesus? Why, why do they think he's so precious or beautiful? Why do they love him so much? It doesn't make sense. It's because you're, you're in darkness. You can't understand. You can't see. You can't understand these things on your own. You need the Spirit to make you alive and to cause you to see. And that's what happened in the past. We have had the eyes of our hearts enlightened, the eyes of our understanding, the eyes of our, our, our soul, our eyes of faith, the spiritual eyes. But, but that does not end because we continue to be illumined. John 14, 26, I've used it already. It says it again. He will teach you all things. He continues to teach us. We continue to learn more. John 15, that when the helper comes, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He's the one who's he's teaching us. He's growing us in wisdom and in revelation. And his primary work is through the word of God and through prayer. And that's what you see here in John 14, 15, 16. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, John 16, verse 13, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The, the work of the Holy Spirit is to cause us to grow in wisdom and revelation in the word and in prayer. To continually enlighten the eyes of our hearts. To help us to see. To grow our understanding of who God is as we study his word. To understand, grow our nearness to God as we approach Him in prayer. The normal means of grace are what the Holy Spirit uses. And as we firstly showed that our work in the Word and in prayer and in church services and evangelism is entirely vain if the Holy Spirit is not at work in us and to us and through us, you can also know that you should have no reason to expect the working of the Holy Spirit if you avoid the places where He works. If you do not read the Scriptures, if you do not pray, if you are not participating in the fellowship of the believers, if you refuse all the means of grace clearly told you of how to grow and where the Spirit will work, you should not expect some great working of the Holy Spirit in your life. You shouldn't expect growth. You shouldn't expect fruit-bearing. You shouldn't expect a, a triumphant, victorious Christian life. You shouldn't expect power to defeat sin or freedom from sin because you're avoiding the very ways in which the Spirit works. It's foolishness. The Spirit enlightens our eyes through the Word that He teaches. And He takes that further from the head to the heart and applies it to us. He convicts us. He causes what we know to be turned into action. As we, as we do not quench the Spirit, but obey Him. 
And so, on the one hand, as you do all the things that you ought to do, you must be in full dependence to the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, we do reject what's called quietism, which is just to sit around, do nothing, and wait for some strange burning in your bosom that tells you where the Spirit is leading. No, you get up. You, you pour yourself into this Word. You study it. You pour yourself out in prayer to God. You delight in worshiping Him. You, you meet together with the saints. You, you speak together, not just of anything, but on the things of God, to encourage each other, to strengthen each other, to warn each other lest there be hardened hearts building, to exhort each other, to press each other on to love and good deeds. You sing the songs of the saints in, in hymns and songs and spiritual songs. You share the word with each other, exhorting each other that way. You meditate on the word. You memorize it to, to hide it in your heart so that you do not sin. You share the word and become salt and light to those around you. Do all those things and you can expect that the Spirit will meet you there if you do not go on your own strength. You can do those things in confidence expecting that the Holy Spirit will walk with you and strengthen you and empower you as you submit to his leading. And so it's both and. You both entirely depend on the Holy Spirit and you continue to obey what is written here and to pour yourself into a life of knowing God and making him known. So thirdly, Paul gives then three specific things to know. This is what we will, we will wrap up on. As he directs the Ephesians to three things to know, to really grip and to grasp, that the Holy Spirit would take these truths and, and weave them into the fabric of their lives. Not just to know these things are true, but that it would change and impact their lives as we've been speaking. And this is, these, these will be what we already know. You, these are not new truths to you. But there is much more to be grasped, to be impacted by, as the Holy Spirit applies these to our lives. The three are these, that we would know. One, the hope to which he has called you. Two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And three, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, as he goes on to describe the power. Let me give you a couple of thoughts on these, and then we'll close. First, see how God-focused they are. He says he wants us to have the Spirit in the knowledge of God so that we can know the hope to which who has called us? God. God is the one who called you into this hope. The riches of whose inheritance? You would think he might say our inheritance because it is ours, but no, he says riches of his inheritance. And 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And you see then, again, pulling back the curtain, this is how the Holy Spirit works. He turns our eyes to look at God and who He is and what He has done. And as He reveals more of who God is, as He teaches us more of what God has done, and as He changes us and weaves that into our lives so that it becomes part of our, our root system, as it were, integral to who we are. Not something that's out here, but something that changes us and affects us. That is what changes us. To know God. First, the hope to which He has called you. And in all these things, you kind of see both past and, and present and future. It's this the whole of our lives. It's rooted in eternity past. That God 
has called us. That before all of time, before creation, God called His own. It is irrevocable. It cannot be changed. You, if you are in Christ, are one of the called ones. You cannot change that. No one can change that. The hope that you have is rooted solidly in the sovereign, irrevocable, irrevocable will of God. Now, that is why you have hope. Because it cannot be changed. And the hope itself looks to the future. Look at Romans 8. He says, those who are called according to the purpose and the end, it works out well for those who are called. Who are the ones who are called? Those who he foreknew. And what are the ones he called to? He called them to be predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. We were called to be conformed to the image of Christ. 1 John 3, we are God's children now, but what we will not be, What we will be has not yet appeared. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. We will be conformed to the image of Christ because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. The hope of being like Christ, of being free from sin, all the glories of heaven, all of that is rooted in the eternal call of God. It cannot be shaken And so in this present life, we look at the certain reality of being called, the certain hope of going home to heaven, and we live with hope now. Secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Romans 8 again, we'll go back and back to it, that we have been made children of God by the Spirit. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our inheritance, our adoption, is predestined, predetermined in eternity past, as Ephesians 1 says. It was wrought in us by the Holy Spirit and not by our own self. It is a certain reality. And because of that, we are joint heirs with Christ. That inheritance, as Peter writes, is, cannot be defiled, cannot fade away. It is reserved, preserved, kept in heaven for you specifically. The inheritance God has given for you is certain, more certain than death. And so in this world, it affects us. We do not lay up treasures on this world. We do not consider everything in this world dear. We know there is an inheritance waiting for us. That is what we live for. We do not become distracted and taken up with the things of this world. Thirdly, the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. How great is this power? Well, he he can't stop there. He says, The immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, and on and so forth. The raising of Christ from the dead. This power is finished. It is not up for debate. The demonstration of his power, the, the, the measure to which we measure his power, Cannot be, cannot be doubted. 
Again, it is a certain reality of the past. Christ is raised from the dead. And this is Paul's key argument in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ has been raised from the dead, and so our resurrection is sure. Hear this as a, as a hope from 1 Corinthians 15. We'll read quite a bit of it, from starting in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. See, the hope of our resurrection is tied directly to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Just as certainly as we have borne this earthly body, because Christ was raised from the dead, we will just as certainly bear a spiritual, glorified, wonderful body. The dead will be raised imperishable. We will be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable body, and this mortal body must put on immortality. The certainty of our resurrection of our future is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. And if you imagine, Paul's writing to the Ephesians, and these things need to sink in deep. They're facing a, a whole city given over to the worship of idols. A city that will try to tempt them back into the worship of idols. Persecutions will come. False teachers will come in, as he promises there in the book of Acts. They, they will be torn apart. They will be persecuted. They will be tempted to leave their first love. And there, some of them will. And most of them are all of them. They'll be distracted by the things of this world. They will have hardships. They will lose families and jobs. So the questions that, that would face them would be, can, can God really hold us all the way to the end? Will we, is there really a resurrection that is coming for us? And so they need to know the power of God to hold them. They need to know, and we need to know as we face in our lives, these truths, they need to be sunken in deep. And we take these and we could add to them so many more throughout this book of realities of who God is and what he has done for us that need to sink in deep so that they change us. Don't be discouraged by hardship, you might say. You have a hope that is more sure than death. This hope is what God has called you to. Are things difficult? Are you feeling creation groaning around you and, and even within you? You have a hope. Keep your eyes heavenward. Are you feeling the pull of this world to get caught up in all these worldly things, to get distracted by earthly possessions? Don't. You have an inheritance coming. Don't labor for the things that perish. Don't store up treasure on this earth where moth and rust corrupt. Set your eyes firmly on things above. That's where Christ is. He is your life. That's where your inheritance is. You have treasure in heaven. Build treasure in heaven. Do you have fears? Are you being persecuted? Do you wonder about the assurance of your salvation? Don't fear. Christ is risen from the dead. The power of God to raise Christ from the dead is at work in you to raise you from the dead. Do you struggle with sin? The power of God to raise Christ from the dead is at work in you to war against sin, to put to death sin. 
It is by the Spirit that you mortify to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Spirit is the power of God. You have omnipotent power by the Spirit to wage war against sin and to kill it. Can you be sanctified? Can you walk through this life in holiness and purity? As, as he says in Colossians, that we ought to be strengthened with his power, according, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all endurance and patience with joy. Can you walk through this hard life with endurance, putting one foot in front of the other, faithfully and faithfully, never giving up, never wavering, until you die? You don't have the power to do that. None of us do. But God is powerful to do that. He raised Christ from the dead. That's already finished. And that power is already at work in you. So can you have endurance? Can you win the war against sin? You can. Why? Because God is at work in you. You see how these truths, which we all know, sink deep and they change our lives if the Spirit is at work to produce that fruit in us. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 kind of wraps up all these three. The, the idea of hope, of an inheritance, and of the power of God. Hear this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so these truths about God, the knowledge of God, is what Paul prays the Spirit to produce the knowledge of, to really help us grasp it. So how do we pray for the Holy Spirit? How do we live in this world? We must be entirely dependent on the Holy Spirit. Your whole life must be a desperate longing for His work in your life. Do you wish for more sanctification? He is the one that produces that in you. Do you wish for people around you to be saved? He is the one that makes them born again. Do you wish for greater reality of God's promises in your life? Greater reality of who God is? To increase in the knowledge and intimacy with God that is produced by the Holy Spirit. Do you want to produce fruit in every good work in your life? The Spirit is the one who produces that in you. You cannot do anything without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. But you have the Holy Spirit. You're not looking for something that is far off. God is not reluctant to help you. God made the first move. He indwelt you with the Holy Spirit so that you would have this power, have this enlightening, this illuminating. He is invested and interested in all these things that you seek. You will not find him unwilling. It is you and I who are unwilling. We are the ones who want to depend on our own strength. We are the ones who neglect the means of grace that he's given us and depend instead on, on feelings or, or whatever else, just coasting along. God has never been the one found lax in our sanctification in our Christian life. And so go to him, study the word, pray, and realize every step you take must be empowered by the Holy Spirit if it is to bear any kind of fruit. But secondly, to those who do not know Christ, you, you have none of this. This is, this is not yours. 
You, you will never win the war against sin. You will never have clarity and, and sight in your life. You do not have an inheritance. Uh, that's not a good one. The wages, the wages you have earned is death. You do not have a hope except for certain destruction. But just like I just said, God is not unwilling. He is not a God far off leaving you to your own devices. He sent His Son for you so that anyone who believes on Him would be saved. You cannot come to Christ on your own. You cannot believe in Him on your own. You will not be able to produce faith within yourself. You cannot unblind the eyes. You are held captive by one who is much stronger than you. Your only hope is that a stronger one than he will defeat him and set you free. That one who said in the beginning, let light shine out of darkness, and there was light, will shine into your heart and cause you to see. That the one who walked around raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, causing the deaf to hear, and the blind to see will cause the eyes of your soul to see. And he will. He says, come to me, the poor who don't have any money, the thirsty, the hungry, the weary, the weak, the heavily burdened. You will come to him, acknowledging your desperation and your need. You cannot save yourself. He will save you. He saves those who cannot save themselves. You need to have the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you can see Christ. You are blind, being led into outer and utter darkness. Turn to God and be saved. And you will see a light dawning and more beautiful, more glorious than anything you, you have ever dreamed and, and more besides. It is wonderful to have the Holy Spirit and to walk in the light Please, please walk in the light today and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. We thank you that Christ has left and left us your spirit. We know that as much as we long to see him, that it was better for him to depart so that we would have your spirit working inside of us that we might see you with the eyes of faith. That we might have your word and understand who you are as we study it. Lord, in any way that I have misrepresented or misspoken, I pray that you would wipe that away from memories and from minds. Lord, that your word would remain. Lord, as before, we are still desperate for your Holy Spirit to work, to, to cause these words and good thoughts to sink down into good soil and bear fruit. I pray for souls to be saved, to be brought from darkness to light, even this evening. Lord, we want to know you, to walk with you, and we are entirely dependent on you to help us do that. So please help us and lead us and guide us. Strengthen us for patience and endurance in your word, to be steadfast immovable, always abounding in good works. We love you. We want to know you and be near you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen.